I, I was telling a friend of mine the other day, you know, when you're younger, um, you want that big house, you want that car, you want that money, that big paycheck. And then as you get older, you're like, you know, that's not what makes you happy. What makes you happy is doing something you love. Welcome to Appalachian Startup, stories of new ideas that eventually became thriving businesses in areas that most would consider a bad investment. I'm J.D. Belcher, and I started this podcast because I took the same path as a lot of these folks. I'm a former coal miner and now make films through my own production company called JJN Multimedia. I wanted to hear others speak of their journey to not only give new beginners hope, but to help me grow as a fellow entrepreneur. On the final week of Mercer Grassroots March, we sat down with Matt Barnett, the owner of Sophisticated Hound Brewing Company. His journey has taken him from a master's degree in business from WVU to taking his hobby of homebrewing full-time by opening his own tap room on Mercer Street in Princeton. Keeping it local is important to him, and we discuss the process of becoming a successful brewer in Appalachia. Grab a cold one, unless you're driving, of course, and hear his words to describe his passion. Enjoy. Uh, Sophisticated Hound is uh, Merce County's first brewery. Um, we've been in business since about 2013. I uh, started distributing local to local restaurants, Texas Steakhouse, uh, Applebee's, Brandon's, Compestre. Um, I built a building in the back of my house. I'm a home brewer. That's how I started. So I started home brewing about 2006, 2007. Um, did that for a couple years. And then I started making my own recipes. And in 2013, I obtained all my licensing. So, um, like I said, I built a building in the back of my house, um, complete with a small um, three and a half barrel system and some fermenters, walk-in cooler, and just started distributing local uh, with kegs. And then probably about, let's see, we've been in business down here since June 8th of 2018. So we acquired the building about 10 months before that, and we renovated it. It took us about 10 months, and it is what it is now. Awesome. So what is homebrewing for someone who may not know? Well, homebrewing is uh, it's kind of, I guess, if, you, if you're interested in brewing, that's how you start. Um, the way I did it, I got online and found a uh, website that basically you tell them what kind of beer you want to make, stouts, IPAs, ale, whatever, and they send you the recipe. They send you the kit. So you just add all the ingredients. You do the fermentation, all that stuff, and then you have your beer. So, like I said, I did that for a while. Then I started doing research on different kind of yeast strands, hops, grains, started developing my own recipes, um, and then started building my own recipes after that. So, in the early years of that process, uh, was there a lot more to it than you originally thought there would be? Uh, it was scary when you first started, yeah, because, um, you know, you, you, you want to make something good. And your friends are there that drink your beer and they say, hey, this is great stuff. You should try to go legal with it. And uh, they're your friends, so they're supposed to tell you it's good no matter what it tastes like. Right. But um, yeah, it was it was difficult, especially when you started doing your own recipes, because unlike when you bake um, goods or cook, you don't just double your recipe. Like, let's say we're, I'm cooking for two people. Well, if I want to cook for four, I just double that recipe. Brewing is totally different. Um, your acidic levels of your of your hops come into play because you don't want to make a stout that's overpowered by hops. So you just can't double the hop recipe because if you double the hop recipe, then your acidic levels are going to be too high and you're not going to have the right kind of beer. Gotcha. So I'm assuming there, there's... Go ahead. 
I'm sorry. There, yeah, there's a lot of calculation involved with making sure the recipe's right. So when you come up with uh, like, hey, I think this is a thing. Do you remember? Do you write down the process as you go, or do you remember the process? In the, in the early stages, I kept a notebook. Um, if I wanted to make a beer, I, I did research on that type of beer because um, most all beers fall into a certain profile. Stouts fall into a certain profile. IPAs fall into a certain profile. So within that profile, you have room to work. Um, some, <clears throat> excuse me, some IPAs are more hoppier than others. Uh, some IPAs use different hops to get that certain, that, that different taste of the IPA. You have a citra, which is more of a citrusy IPA. You have uh, hops that are, for example, like um, Amarillo or uh, uh, Nugget or Fugle hops that are more of a piney or earthy hop. So just depending on what kind of IPA you want to get is the hop that you would try. Right. So when you say profile, what do you mean by that? Like, um, Let's say, for example, you're looking at a stout. Mm-hmm. So a profile for a stout, it has roasted barley. It has your base grains, which is where most of your alcohol content comes from. It has a certain flavors that a stout should be. So if you put in, for example, if you put in too much of one malt or one grain, um, it's going to fall outside of that profile. So it's not going to be a stout. It's not considered a stout at that point. You have to fall within that style's profile to keep it that type of beer. Right. And you add like, how do you add different flavoring and stuff? Like, I guess you have the profile and then is there other things you add to give it like Yeah, we have, you know, for example, um, you know, based off whatever profile you're doing, let's say, for example, we have, a, we have an American wheat that we do. So an American wheat is a certain profile. We then add, um, for our, for our American wheat that we call Bumble Blossom, we then we take that American wheat profile, we make the American wheat beer, and then we add um, 10 pounds of honey from right across the street and at Blue Ridge Bee Company and uh, 30 to 40 pounds of peaches on top of that to give it a different flavor altogether. It's still an American wheat, but we've added stuff to it to make it our own American wheat. And then you name it. How does right. the, what's the naming process? Is it? You know, or you're just it's like, just well, stuff. Yeah, it's just you know. Sometimes, for example, like I said, bumble blossom. Since we use, uh, we we use an orange blossom honey. So blossom comes from that bumble B and B honey. So bumble blossom. That's a that's a catchy name too. And then we do, we have you know we have 18 different styles of beer that we do. Um, the first beer that we ever brewed was an American stout. So American stouts, as opposed to a Guinness, which is an uh, Irish stout. Mm-hmm. American stouts are a lot more hoppier. Um, simply because of the grains and the hops you use in an American stout are grown here in America. And the acidic levels of here versus over there are different. Um, so we have, we have two different, we have a Rumpelstiltskin, which is our Irish stout, and we have Racer 8, which is our American stout. They're both, they're both the same exact kind of beer. Mm-hmm. Same grain, same hops, same yeast, everything's the same. The only difference is Rumpelstiltskin, the Irish stout, everything was grown and cultivated in the UK. Over here, American Stout, everything was grown and cultivated in America. So it gives it a totally different taste, totally different profile. Right. So at any time you can go there and, and you'll have 18 different varieties? We or? try to keep at least 13 of our own at all time. And then we have a couple guest taps. And usually we try to fill the guest taps up of uh, other West Virginia beer. It's important to us to keep as local as possible, be it our community or be it the state. Is there a beer community? Like, is is there a movement? Which I feel like, you know, I've heard of a lot of breweries opening up in West Virginia right. over the past five, ten years. Um, is there kind of like a culture going on? 
I think so. Um, I mean, you know, as far as craft beer goes, West Virginia is still new to craft beer. And like you said, over the past five, six years, seven years, there's been a lot more breweries pop up in West Virginia because of uh, changes in legislation. It's allowed more freedom to the brewers, um, easier access to grains, for example, uh, to, to bring more brewer, breweries in. And craft beer as a whole, I think, is definitely a movement. People are getting away from the ordinary, the mundane. They want something different. And they're willing to pay that extra price if they like it for that something different. Right. So fast forward from the homebrew days to I'm going to get this space and start this whole thing. Um, you know, was it kind of a gradual process or were, did you just wake up one day and you're like, you know what? Screw it. Let me just see what happens. Well, and- I mean, you know, when, when you're brewing, your ultimate goal is to have a tap room. Um, you can distribute locally or however you want to do it. Um, you're only going to do so much. Your product's going to get out, but it's not going to get, it's, you're not going to get the backing if, if you had, if you didn't have a tap room, mm-hmm. if you didn't have a place where people could come and be part of the culture, be part of the experience. Because tap rooms and breweries, in our opinion, it's not just a place to go to drink, it's an experience. You go there, you, you feel like you're part of something. And that's what we try to do at Sophisticated Down. Mm-hmm. And how did you come up with the Sophisticated Hound name? Uh, in 2009, I adopted a racing greyhound. He's a retired racing greyhound. Um, when he raced, his name was Denouncer to the Throne. They give him weird names. <laughs> nice. Yeah, they <laughs> give him weird names one, like, like that, like they do horses when they race. Sure. Um, we call him Big D. And uh, that's where everything started. The, the name um, was originally going to be called the Sophisticated Greyhound. We shortened it to this Sophisticated Hound. Um, the very first beer we brewed was Race Rate American Stout. That's because when he raced, he raced in a number eight. So that's where that name comes from. Right. That's awesome. And, um, you know, you obviously paid attention to branding and how important it is to, you know, put yourself out there and look good. Uh, how did you come up with the logo and, and create the whole brand behind the... Um, my background, I have a degree in marketing. Ah, so I kind of understand... Helps. Yeah, I understand demographics and your target market and branding and all that. Um, I have, I have a, a really good team behind me. Um, I graduated from Concord. My bachelor's degree is at Concord. I have a master's degree from WVU in business. Um, one of my fraternity brothers from Concord, he's a graphic designer. So I have the idea, but I can't draw. So I would give him the idea and he would sketch out some stuff, send them back to me and I'd change it. And he'd send it back to him just back and forth until we got the exact logo we wanted. Sure. And the, uh, the can art is impressive too. So, um, how did uh, how did you bring people in upon opening? Did you you know start having bands immediately? Or? Yeah, um, well, like you know, it's something that Princeton. It, it, it was shocking to me before I started the whole process of why we didn't have this. Every everywhere everywhere else that you go, you travel, you know, places that are renovating or, or trying to bring back local. At the center of that is a place for people to come um, for the experience to gather to hang out, to meet new people. And usually it's a brewery. If you go to Asheville, if you go to Lewisburg, if you go, you know, name a place that you've been to that have a, has a place like the Grassroots District. Um, there's always a brewery there at the center. So we felt that it was something that Princeton needed and and they've wanted for a while. So um, it was a leap. It was kind of scary, um, especially with the stigma that Mercer Street has had in the past. Um, but we got the building and we just jumped right into it. And um, from day one, it's been nothing but. 
when you got, when you got the building, did you have to put a lot of work into it? Or yeah, it took us about it took us about ten and a half months to get what you see. If you've been to the tap room to get what you see now at the tap room, uh, we gutted the entire building. So really, the only original uh, aesthetics of the building that's there now is the brick walls. We wanted to keep the brick walls because the de- from day one when I walked in that building, I seen the brick walls, and it you know it's just begging. It's begging for a pub, for a brewery, for something. And as far as we can tell, the the building. It's, it's got to be at least over 100 years old, at least that, um, because on the brick, the front part of the building we know was built after, I'm sorry, the back part of the building was built after the front part. And on the back side where we do the brewing, the brewing, um, the bricks have dates on them. And those dates are anywhere from like 1901 to 1906. Mm-hmm. So if the back part of the building was built during that time frame, then the front part of the building had to be, you know, at least 10 years earlier. So we're, we're figuring around, you know, 100 maybe a little bit over a hundred years old. If you had to estimate the cost of what it took to start up and to be selling beer, what would you say you put into starting this business? Well, as um, you know, us, we're, we're kind of different from a lot of other breweries that you visited or that you've been to. Um, we, we consider, you know, if you go to a craft craft beer tap room and you see systems, no, no fault to anybody else that, has tap rooms. I mean, I love every brewer in the state. We're, we're a close knit group. If I, if I have a problem with something, I'll call Sam from weathered ground or Sam from big timber. Um, say, Hey man, I'm looking for this kind of hop. Can't find anywhere. And you know, Hey, we got some, we'll sell you some, or if a piece of equipment breaks down, for example, our grinder broke down a couple months ago and I called Sam from weathered ground. He said, yeah, man, bring up, bring up some grain. You can grind it here. No problem. So they're great guys to work with. Um, our brewery is a lot different from their breweries. Um, because we feel that if you're going to get a craft beer it needs the first part of that word is craft. So if you go to Budweiser or anywhere else and look at their systems, it's push buttons. You know, you push a button for water, you push a button to add the grain, temperature controls, all there. We have none of that. Everything's done by hand. It's as craft as you can get. And we take pride in, in that fact. Um, the only thing that we have that's automated is our temperature control that runs our glycol system, which keeps the fermenters at a constant temperature. And that's it. Um, so. So if you was to give me, of course, I know nothing about the subject. If you was to give me a crash course in five minutes of this is how you brew beer, you know, right. what's the process? A lot of breweries, um, they do what's called sparge or fly sparge brewing, which you take your grain from your grain bill and you have two kettles. You have a mash tun and your boil kettle. So you put all your grains in your mash tun and then you add half your water and it sits there for an hour, hour and a half, whatever um, the recipe calls for. And it like steeps like tea. So then you drain that fluid off the grain through a false bottom into your boil kettle. At the same time, you're also adding the other half of your water needed back in on top of the grain and repeating the process. That second part of that water is washing the grains and getting the alcohol and the sugars or the sugars that you need to make the alcohol off that grain to bring over the, to the boil kettle. What we do is called infusion brewing. So we have two pumps um, that run figure eights through both kettles. So it's all going at the same time. You're, you're, you're washing the grains and bringing them over and it's, it's continuously washing the grains. And so you're getting as much sugars and as much flavor out of those grains that you can get by doing that before you bring it over. Um, you asked me about, you know, a cost earlier, uh, you know, some breweries, it, it's, you know, the sky's the limit really, you know, it's how big you want to go, how, how, how much technology you want. Uh, we have no investors at sophisticated hound and that's something that we take pride in also. 
Uh, no backers. Everything's out of pocket. Um, so, I mean, we're a lot less, we're a lot better. We're a lot, but that being said, our cost has been a lot cheaper than other breweries, but we do stuff different than other breweries. Right. So did you have to like stick your neck out and take a loan to oh, start yeah. the business? And Several. Yeah. Where did you go to do that? Like what's the process of getting a business loan? Well, I mean, you know, being from uh, a local area like this, we just go down to the bank and we, we stay, this is what we want to do. Um, this is the equipment we're looking at. This is the price we're needing. And basically as long as you, you know, you have the, the business backing there to, to suffice that amount of the loan, then you're good to go. Gotcha. You kind of draft, do you draft a business model? Like here's what uh, we're going to charge. We, or? we didn't actually, not on paper. We didn't draft a business model on paper. We just went to them and said, this is what we want to do. Gotcha. And again, you know, from day one, be it the banks, be it the community, we've had nothing but tremendous support. And um, it's truly humbling every day that I go down there, especially on Fridays and Saturdays when you see all the people mm -hmm. um, and you see people coming in from other states and, and you realize that, you know, this works. How, like, you know, what does a weekend look like? Like how many people come through the doors usually on a normal day on the weekend? I mean, it can be anywhere from... We've had, we've had, I guarantee during, during the summer months and at any given time, there's at least a hundred to 200 people down there at any given time. That's awesome. Um, we have music, live music every Saturday. And, uh, from day one, we opened on June 8th of 2018, which is the same day that they have the, uh, festival down here on town in town. And we, we coincided that on purpose to get as much exposure as we could at one t at that time. So we opened when the festival stopped. So all those people were already down here and the buzz was all, all about town anyway, about this brewery coming to town and people wanted to check it out. Um, so we had live music that day. And after that Saturday, we had bands calling us and we still have bands calling us continuously. We, we haven't, we haven't reached out to anybody. Bands call us to come down and play. Um, we filled up an entire six months of scheduling within a week. Oh, wow. Yeah. So and we, I mean, we're booked up now through the end of April already. That's awesome. So how do you decide, like, you know, I'm going to, this is how much this beer is going to cost. Like, here's these 22 ounces or whatever, and it costs this much. How do you get to that figure? Well, I mean, you got to factor in um, the type of beer you're making. Type of beer you're making. For example, uh, we have, we, we, we make 18 different types of beer. 18 different styles, ranging from a 4% blonde ale, which is a normal everyday beer. We call it a gateway. Um, people come in all the time. They say, you know, what do you got? It's like Miller, Miller Light or Bud Light. Because down here, Southern West Virginia, domestic is still king. And, mm -hmm, right. and we're trying to get people away from that. And uh, so that we use that as a gateway. And once they, they get that, they taste it, they want to try something else. And they want to try something else. So that's how we get them, you get them trapped, if you want to say. But um, go back to your question, you have to figure out into it the the amount of grains you're using the amount of hops you're using you know if this hop costs more than another hop you have to factor all that in we make uh everything from a four percent blonde all the way up to a 12 percent bourbon stout so of course our bourbon stout because of what's in it it's all right go ahead um because of what's in it is going to be more than a blonde ale 12 percent man yeah that's yeah. and that was <laughs> that was um you know a couple of years ago the limit for a west virginia beer was 10%. Right. So recently, I think maybe it might've been close to a year ago now, maybe six months, they changed that ruling. So you could make up to a 13. Oh, cool. So we pushed that envelope as much as we can. Sure. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, so when did, 
when did you decide to, was you going to sell food since the beginning or? And that, you know, that was another thing that we looked at. Um, we wanted to be different and you know, you go to these breweries and a lot of them have, uh, food trucks. Well, food trucks only sell certain items. Not everybody likes food truck food. So we needed something. We had to have some kind of food if you're going to sell alcohol. So we decided to put a little kitchen in and sell, you know, little sandwiches, a couple pizzas. Looking back on it now, things you would have done different. I would have made a bigger kitchen for sure. Uh, because the amount of food that we pump out of that little space, it, it could be a lot bigger. Right. So you said you have to sell food. Yeah. Who says that? That's a, that's a, that's a requirement. If you're selling alcohol, there has to be some kind of food there. Be it a bag of chips, be it a steak dinner. It has to be some kind of food. That's required by the state? Yep. Gotcha. So who cooks the food? Uh, I have a crew of nine employees. Uh, we have a, we have Shane, which is my right hand. Um, he's my assistant brewer. He's also the bar manager. Uh, we have a couple waitresses, and then we have uh, four people, not at one time, a rotating uh, staff that, that works in the kitchen, uh, myself being one of those most of the time. So, Gotcha. How did you create the menu? I just started, um, you know, coming up with different ideas for sandwiches. Um, you know, I, I, I travel a lot around uh, West Virginia, North Carolina, the States, and I always go to breweries. I always go, always go to local places. I don't go to franchises. So uh, I see things that I like, and I you know, put it in my brain and try to repeat that when I get home or try to make something kind of like it or just, you know, you don't want something that's ordinary. We try to push the envelope on everything we do. Does your menu have suggestions for each beer or is there certain beer that works with? Our menu doesn't have suggestions, but our staff is pretty well versed in the beer and what goes into that. Mm -hmm. And they say, okay, if you're going to eat something spicy, you might like this IPA because spice and IPA goes together. Gotcha. Okay. And uh, what kind of regulations is someone looking at when they want to sell beer or bottle and sell their own beer? Like, what's the process of getting licensing? And Well, first, if you're a home brewer and you want to go legal, um, you have to be licensed by the state to be a resident brewer. So that's one license. Uh, West Virginia is a self-distributing state, so you can distribute your own beer, which we have two distributors that we're working with right now. It was just easier for, easier for us to do that because of what we want to do as fast as we wanted to move. Um, but if you, so you can be, a, you can self-distribute your own product, but you have to be a resident brewer. That's the first license you have to have. Of course, you have to have a business license. If you're inside city limits, you have to have a city business license. Um, if you're going to open a tap room, you have to have a license for that. If you're going to sell wine like we do in our tap room, you also have to have a license for that. Uh, your growlers, your jugs that you sell the beer in, you have to have a license for that. Um, growler. What is that? Growlers are a lot. A lot of breweries that you go to, they sell beer in take-home vessels, thirty-two ounces, sixty-four ounces jugs. A lot of them are glass. Ours are double-walled, insulated, uh, stainless steel. So if you picture like a big Yeti, that's what our growlers are. Gotcha. Okay. Did you did you find any hurdles that you didn't really expect? Uh, along every day. the way, every, every day. <laughs> yeah. Is yeah. there certain ones that come to mind that pop up every now and then? Um, the first, the first uh, hurdle we faced was before you can sell any beer, it has to be registered with the state, which that's not the problem. You just send them say, Hey, this is our new beer. We're offering it to whoever. Um, but the hurdle came where you have to have it also tested to see what's in it. And originally we were sending our samples to a lab and then they were sending us back a sheet of paper that said, okay, this is what's in it. This is the alcohol content, so forth and so on. 
we would then send that to the state so they would have it on record. Well, um, UPS and FedEx, they stopped what they were doing and wouldn't allow us to send that. So we now have to uh, test and analyze our own product to send it to the state before we can sell it. Right. And how do you do that? We have different devices, uh, hydrometers um, that measure the sugar content before. So you, you, give it, you get a hydrometer reading when you make the beer before the yeast starts fermentation. So whatever sugar level you're at there, let's say you're making a 5% stout. Um, and let's say, for example, your sugar levels are at nine. And I'm just throwing numbers out here. Mm-hmm. Um, let's say your sugar levels are at nine and you want 5%. So right now it's saying you're at, you're at nine. So that's what your hydrometer reading says. And then after the fermentation gets done, let's say that your reading is four. So nine minus four gives you 5%, give you a five. So it's 5% alcohol in that product gotcha okay and and you mentioned you know you don't push no buttons or anything like that like i imagine you have a pretty intense measuring process when it comes to all this stuff is that kind of how you keep the beer consistent yeah you have to make sure like any variation of any recipe will change it totally so i mean you have to make sure your measurements are correct um and i mean we do that on a daily basis it's just something once you do it for so long you just you just get it uh, the cleaning is another thing. Um, an average brew day, if we're brewing, we have the, we have the ability to brew 2,000 gallons every two weeks. Um, so when we're, we have three different systems that we run. We have a pilot system, which is when we're first starting making a, making a beer, we put it there first. Uh, we try it out. If it needs something, we try it again until we get it right, until we get it where we want it. And then we put it over on the tap system, the tap room system, which is our next system. And it's, about, it's, it's a three and a half barrel that I told you about that I started with. And that sells at the tap room specifically there, nowhere else. And we see what the what the sales do at the tap room before we decide to put it on our big system, which is a ten and a half barrel system um, that has three ten and a half barrel fermenters and a bright tank to it. Before and then, that's where we send it out the door to distribution. So, other than the uh, the storefront, what other markets are there in West Virginia when it comes to distributing your product? Uh, restaurants, gas stations grocery stores, um, other tap rooms that will have guest taps like we do. Right. Uh, how do you, f- how do you make those connections? Do you network or? Yeah. Uh, for example, like I said, we use two distributors now. We use one for Southern West Virginia that I've been with since day one and they've been really, really good. Uh, we're starting to push our product more North. So we, we can hit theoretically we're in every County in West Virginia. Um, that's where, that's where our footprint reaches. So when we're trying to get north, for example, uh, Charleston would be the next, the, that was, that's one place that we've recently got into. Uh, I go up there and I talk to the several of the restaurants, say, hey, this is who I am. This is, our, this is our company. This is what we do. I take them samples. They can taste it, whatever. And then that's, that's where they start purchasing it. Gotcha. And, you know, West Virginia, I will say that West Virginia, no matter where I go, they've really, they've really bought into this, keep it local. Keep it local. Um, they want local beer, they want local products and they're, 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 they really, really, uh, they really want the local. How many breweries are in West Virginia? Do you know now? I think at last check, um, I think I saw maybe 30, mm-hmm. between 25 and 30. Yeah. Right. Um, and you know, five or six years ago, there was like five. So. Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, those first clients, uh, well, how many clients do you all have now that you, that you distribute to? 
Do you know? uh, right off the top of my head, I couldn't give you an exact number. Gotcha. Because, I mean, we're like I said, Dozens. theoretically, we can be in every single county. It just depends on whether or not our distributor gets them that, you know, gets the beer there. Sure. Right. And uh, you mentioned 2,000 gallons. We can do, at capacity, we can do 2,000 gallons every two weeks. Every two weeks. So one run takes two weeks. It depends again what kind of beer you're making. Gotcha. Uh, we do a Pell which is our 1863 Pell uh, We named it that because West Virginia became a state in 1863. Um, we can brew it every four days because of the type of beer it is. So we brew it. It usually takes about four days to make the alcohol. So once it's done making the alcohol process, we then drop it to almost freezing. So the proteins fall out of it faster and we can get it out the door quicker. How many flavors would you, well, I'll say flavors. I don't know if that's the word, but how many varieties have you made over the course since you started? How did, how did you narrow it down to that 18? Um, well, I mean, we've made more than 18, but some of those are variations of what we have now. Like again, like I said, our first time that we made Bumble Blossom, which is what we call our American wheat, it was called American Baby. And it was just a straight American wheat. Um, you know, it was a good beer, but it didn't sell very well. So we started thinking about what we could do to, to make it better. Um, and then the, the Blue Ridge Bee Company came in and said, hey, let's add some honey. I did some research and seen where brewers were working with honey a little bit, added some honey. I said, well, now let's add some fruit to it. So we added some peaches to it and now it's bumble blossom. That's, that's pretty awesome. Um, so you mentioned sell very well. How much does the market drive as to what tap handle you'll have, you know, up? It just depends. I like, you know, uh, down here, for example, 1863 at the tap room sells tremendously well. Southern areas, it sells tremendously well. The more north you go, people's change, I guess people's tastes are different. They, it changes a little bit. 1863 doesn't sell as well north that it does south. So usually 1863 doesn't go north. Right. Um, our, our, our ones that sell good north are Bumble Blossom, um, Halfie's Irish Red. Uh, rye Bellion, which again is our, our English brown that we put honey in from right across the street. We use that and rye grain. We don't do a tremendous amount of rye in it because we want people to taste the beer and not necessarily the rye grain that's in it. Um, if you're doing a rye beer, it's usually about 25 to 28% of the grain bill. We only put 11% in there. Mm-hmm. So we want people to taste the honey. We want people to taste the beer itself, not the rye grain. Gotcha. How long, just for reference, because uh guinness is my favorite how long did it take to make an irish stout your uh our rumple stout is gonna take two weeks two weeks two weeks yeah i'll have to definitely try that um do you set a schedule like i imagine are you brewing multiple beers at once or we usually try to do it because of the process if we're doing a big batch uh on the big system the distribution system it's an all-day process it's you know eight to ten hours um from start to finish and that's you, you can get the beer from beginning to the fermenter in probably four or five hours. Um, then you have to do all the cleaning, and that's a tremendous effort in itself. Everything has to be sanitized. Everything has to be acid washed, rinsed out, all that. Um, if we're doing a small batch, we usually can do two batches a day. Gotcha. So upon opening, what response have you seen from the community? Uh, you know. Uh, f- since you all opened here on the grassroots district, like what has it been like? I know you mentioned uh, you opened during the event that was going on mm-hmm. for for exposure, but you know, obviously, you have to be good and consistent to keep going. So, what has that been like from the community? Yeah, I mean, you know, from day one, it was yeah, it was it was a scary process because you know you're putting yourself out there um, with a product that you make that you literally put blood, sweat, and tears into, and now you're asking these people. That you don't know 
to like what you've done. Um, and you know, like I said, from day one, it's been a tremendous support from the community. Uh, we have regulars that come down every Friday and Saturday. We have people that come in from different states, from different counties. Uh, they love the product. They keep coming back. So, right. Was there ever anywhere else you were, were, were you looking at any other locations, but where you ended up moving? Uh, we had, we've had, before we opened on Merce Street on, in the grassroots district, we've had, we had several options to go other places. Uh, you know, Virginia, for example, Bluefield for another example. Um, but I'm from Princeton. I've lived here all my life. I've been here for 43 years. And I told everybody that if I ever opened a tap room, it would be in my hometown. It would be in Princeton. Right. Oh. We, we, we keep, like I said before, you know, we try to stay as local as possible. Our, our, our ingredients, we try to get those as local as possible. The artwork, our sign, our tap panels, they were all made here in uh, Princeton, Athens area. Our shirts, our hats are from right down the street. Our growlers are made right down the street. Um, we have one shirt that says homegrown, and that's kind of our creed. Awesome. Um, who made your tap handles? That was another fraternity brother of mine who's a... <laughs> Who's a, I, like I said, man, I have some good people yeah, behind, in my gotta, corner. Yeah, yeah. Um, his name is, uh, we call him Goose. His name is Mike Sizemore. He's a metal artist from over in Athens. So if you're ever in the tap room, you see the big metal sign behind the bar. He made that. He's also made the sign that we're getting ready to hang outside off the building. Um, and he made the, the tap handle. The tap handles are actually, uh, it's a wood shaft, poplar wood shaft. And the head is, is actually my dog's head a rendering. I gave him a photo and he, he sculpted a 3D model of the head and it's resin so and uh that's that's the that's the head of the handle oh cool so um how do you decide when to add a team member like uh do you kind of get at max capacity and are kind of like wait we need someone else here to clean or to do this or that is that kind of how it works or well i mean you know like when we started um in 18 i had myself i had shane um my wife and another employee. So we had all together four employees. And, you know, if you've ever been to a brewery, the ones I've been to, you know, you don't want to overcrowd yourself with employees. You think four people is plenty enough. I did not expect the, the turnout um, that day or any other day that we've been open. And we quickly doubled our employee staff. Uh, we had, I had friends that I graduated college with and that I've known forever that live in other states. And uh, there was seven of them that came in for the grand opening, and all seven of them worked for me that day. Oh yeah! <laughs> so we felt we figured out very quickly that we needed more staff, but um, we try to keep it, you know, uh, a waitress, for example. Yeah, you might be able to make you probably make more money in tips at another restaurant than here, but we're not a restaurant. People are going to come here. They're going to come. They're going to camp out. They're going to, you know, at a table. They're going to stay. They're going to hang around for a while. So the turnover is not big like it is at a restaurant um and our waitresses understand that and and the crew i have behind me it's a very good crew gotcha so after you know uh opening 2018 you've been through a full year 2019 can you kind of gauge you know slower months as compared to like is it slower when it's colder or is it actually seen um it's starting with, with with the summer that we had this year uh, you know, it was warmer for for a longer time. People were doing more stuff. We saw it slowing down because of that reason, um, because people wanted to get out and do other things. We find that the colder months, it tends to pick back up. 
Um, people want something to do, but they can't get outside. So they come see us. And again, you know, it's an experience. They come down there, they enjoy live music. They enjoy hanging out, talking to everybody. Um, and that, you know, from day one, again, that, that was our, that was our purpose to be an experience where people could come and be part of this movement. Gotcha. Um, so what, what are your hopes for the business? You know, obviously you'd like to keep the doors open, but is there, are you just good with how it's going now? Or you got any big plans for the future or? I mean, we're always thinking of stuff. Um, right now we're happy with where we're at. We're trying to push as much as we can out of this location. Um, I love the location. I fell in love with it. You know, I, like I said, I've been, I've been here all my life and the stigma that Mercer street had for so long, um, was bad. And, and, um, when I first, they, they wanted me to come down and look at the building. I'm like, I don't know if I want to come down on Mercer street, man. It's the first time I've been down on Mercer street since I was in high school because of like, you know, the past. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I was, I, I started getting down here and started working and seeing what Lori was doing with the grassroots district. And I usually fall in love with it, man. And, and it's a great, great area. And we're, you know, we're still trying to get people to come down here to get that mind frame that they have of what Mercer street was to what it is now. Right. Um, I, I mean, we're sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, but I mean, you know, we're always thinking about other stuff to do. We're we're gonna start canning. We're waiting on our our machine. It's supposed to be in sometime this week, so we're gonna start pushing cans out. So uh, we got we got to get a label approval by the state. We got UPC approval, and then uh, we'll start pushing cans out the back door to uh, uh, sell it like Kroger's, Walmart, gas stations. You know, perfect. So even in the past year, the growth has been you know huge. Do you see? Uh, people really embracing the growth of the grassroots district, and I do. You know, do, yeah. do you see all of you all's progress helping each other? Kinda? Yeah, we do. Um, you know, it, it, any Friday and Saturday you come down here, there's cars everywhere, there's people everywhere, and um, you know, it's it's something that again we've needed for a long time, uh, and we tell people, you know, one of the things that hurts this area is the fact that you have 77 right up the road, right, and um. And, sorry. That's all right. And, uh, you know, people come off the interstate and they go to the franchises and that's as far as they go. And if you really want a sense of a community, you need to start, you need to travel in a little bit more and come check out the local scene. Right. What would you uh, say someone needs as far as qualities go when starting a business in a rural community in Appalachia? I think you need to know your, your target market, your, your demographic for sure. Um, the people that you're going to be marketing towards, uh, you need to understand the mind frame that's there. Um, and you have to have a love to do it. Um, and a love for the area. What would you tell them on the first step? Like, what do they do? Like they, like someone who has no funding, but they have a good idea. What, what's something they can do to make it happen? Well, there's, there's, uh, there's several places that you can look at to get that funding, to get that idea. Um, Western Hive is one of them. Um, it's, it's easy to do. You get online, wvhive.com. You fill out an application. Um, they, you discuss what you want to do, what your plans are, and you go talk to a business advisor uh, and they help you out and get your whole, uh, business plan together. I didn't have that resource. I knew what I wanted to do and it might've been because of the background that I have. Um, but I knew what I wanted to do from day one. Um, I'm not saying that if I didn't do that, it might've been better. I don't know, but 
I think it's it's went pretty well from what the way we've done it. So you went to WVU and studied business and marketing. You said it's a uh, it's a yeah it's a it's a master's degree in business from not Morgan It's it's the outlet. It's the uh, satellite. The view. It's all online. Gotcha. It's all online. So uh, did you? So you kind of knew you wanted to start a business. I've wanted to start a business for a long time. Um, my background's in banking. I was with uh, several different banks in the area uh, all together for about 18 years, 19 years. And the last bank I was with got bought out by a bigger bank right when I started brewing. And um, I worked for another company out of Florida for about a year and a half while I was getting all this set up. And it just got too much, you know, doing both sides. And my wife told me one day, she said, you know, you've, you've taken that leap, but you're still straddling both sides. And so I just, you know, October 31st of uh, 2018, I think, was the last day I worked a real job. <laughs> and, you know, the, the money's not the same, but it's, I'm, a lot, I'm a lot happier with what I do. So would you say that's more important in the oh, yeah. end? Yeah. Yeah. Money's, you know, you get, I, I was telling a friend of mine the other day, you know, when you're younger, um, you want that big house, you want that car, you want that money, that big paycheck. And then as you get older, you're like, you know, that's not what makes you happy. What makes you happy is doing something you love and uh, seeing the response that you get from other people from that product you're, you're passionate about. Matt, I am glad to now have met you and am looking forward to watching the sophisticated hound and your recipes grow. Find out more about them by visiting their Facebook page or visiting their tap room on Mercer Street in Princeton, West Virginia. Appalachian Startup is a bi-weekly podcast, so be sure to check back for more stories of entrepreneurship, like us on Facebook and Instagram, and support the show by grabbing a sticker from our online store at AppalachianStartup.com. Review our podcast on Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud as well. We are on Patreon. You can support the show there and allow us to showcase more businesses in Appalachia. Stay tuned for more stories of underdogs on the rise.